Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. So my name is Mike Bowden, in case we haven't met. Uh, so I'm one of the elders and uh, yeah, so looking forward to sharing with you this morning. And did everybody get a bulletin? Because actually, uh, towards the end, I have a, there's an insert in there. Uh, so did anybody not get a bulletin or get one of the inserts? There should be enough for everybody. John will faithfully come around and give you one if you don't have one. Okay, let me uh, just pray real quick and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord, us, your body, that we belong to you. So Lord, we want to be open this morning and sit ready to, to hear what you would have to say to us. Lord, we believe you are present in this very place. So Lord, speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So the um, title of my message today is Growing Up in the Love of God. And um, <clears throat> we're going to be starting off in the Gospels. I'm going to kind of tell it as a story. So don't try to turn there with me. Just kind of believe that I'm actually speaking from the Word and uh, and you can, you can take notes and, and, and uh, follow up if you think I said anything off, off the wall or whatever. But, um, so we're going to start off in the Gospels, and then we're going to end up in, in John 21, and then we're going to finally end up uh, in Second Peter. So we'll be taking some, uh, we're going to be taking some glimpses at Peter's life this morning. Uh, according to, to tradition, Peter was the oldest of the disciples. And John was the youngest. So John, or Peter was probably approximately the age of, of Jesus. And John, at least maybe at the beginning of his calling as a, as a disciple, was only maybe around the age of 18. And if you notice, as we have spent time in Matthew, or as, if you've, read, as you've read the Gospels, if you notice that it seems like almost every encounter there is with Jesus and the disciples that Peter's there. Peter's the one answering. Peter's the one being asked the questions. He seems like he's the spokesman or the leader uh, for the disciples, for the group. And so in looking at Peter, we will look at his early life recorded in the Gospels. A young man, like I said, probably in his early 30s. And just as each one of us, Peter had a lot to learn. So in the narrative, as we begin in the narrative, I would like for us to look at encounters, experiences. And you know that insert that, insert that you have? You don't need that till the very end, so you can kind of, you don't have to be waiting for me to hit on that. So you can, you can put that aside or whatever, and uh, that'll be at the very end of the message, okay? <clears throat> so if I see you pulling that out, I know you're ready for the end, so... <laughs> <clears throat> So in the narrative, I would like us to look at encounters or experiences that had a shaping experience on Peter. Do you realize that you have been shaped, that you are being shaped, if we could say spiritually shaped? We have been shaped in the ways that we approach scripture. We've been shaped by what we think it means to follow Jesus. We all have this idea of what we think it means to follow Jesus, and I think that idea has probably had a shaping on the way we live out our Christian life. 
We have been shaped by our families, our church experiences, whether good or bad or difficult. We've been shaped by our culture. We've been very shaped by our culture, whether we'd like to think we have or not, and so on. Peter was a disciple of Jesus, which means he had placed himself under the teachings of a rabbi. That's what it meant to be a disciple. He had placed himself under the teachings of a rabbi. He was to be shaped by his rabbi. In other words, he was to become like his rabbi. This would require, if you think about it, this would require a lot of love and a lot of patience on the side, on the part of the rabbi. (laughs) Often we think about the side of being the disciple, but actually being the rabbi, it took a lot of patience and love to have these group of guys as disciples. It would also require struggle, learning, and mistakes on the part of Peter, the disciple. We do not choose or have to go out looking for shaping life experiences. God has a way of bringing these into our lives. And if we don't resist them, which to be honest, often we do, they have this beautiful effect of these things that we've gone through that we just thought we could not bear, these difficult things that have come into our life, they have this beautiful effect of shaping us more and more into the likeness of Christ. They change us. They slow us down. They hinder our self-sufficiency. So obviously there's many ex- uh, experiences of Peter I could have picked, but I've picked a few that, have, that stick out to me. So after this, after the kind of the storytelling, we'll then look at Peter's writing in 2 Peter. 2 Peter was written approximately 30 years after what is taking place uh, at the end of the Gospels. And it seems like the book was written to believers who were in exile in Asia Minor. And so we're going to look, do we see a theme in Peter's writings in his later years? Do we hear something particular on his heart in the final years or actually the final days of his life potentially? Hopefully, for all of us who have live as disciples of Jesus, our early formation informs our later focus. Our early formation, the way that Christ has been formed in us, hopefully it informs our focus as we move into our later years, which some of us here, I won't mention any names, but I see some gray hair or even white. Ed, were you born with white hair, Ed? (laughs) So our early formation informs our focus in our later years. Sometimes it takes our later years to actually awaken a focus, if you know what I mean. It is said that John in his older years could no longer walk. The Apostle John says that uh, according to tradition that in his later years he could no longer walk. So he would be carried into the meeting on a stretcher and he would repeat these words. 
little children, love one another. And he said it so often that after a while, the people said back to him, why do you keep saying that? And he would respond with this, because if you get that, everything else falls into place. What John had learned and grown into and experienced with Jesus, it focused his later years. His, his struggles and his trials matured his inner man. And so in many ways, fewer words were needed. So what about Peter? Do we see a focus in Peter in his final years? We'll look at that a little later. I like this quote, and I forget who said it. He or she who begins a journey or sets out on a journey is not the same person who arrives. There's a shaping, there's a changing that takes place. He or she who begins, sets out on a journey is not the same person who arrives. So the apostle Peter, we're going to get into the story. <clears throat> Can you imagine what it must have been like to walk with Jesus as one of his disciples? Picture this through Peter's eyes. He walked on water, at least for a little bit. He watched Jesus calm a storm, feed a multitude with a few fish and loaves, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, confront hypocrisy. Peter made the declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and was told that upon this statement, Christ himself would build his church. He was one of the three at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter had much to learn. At the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, Peter's speaking and God actually interrupts him and says, Peter, well, he didn't say it, he didn't say his name, but this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter declared that he would never forsake the Lord. He told Jesus, don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body. Peter was one who was ready to step out and to speak up. But Peter, as a disciple, also let his rabbi down. You know, not one of us, not one of us, make it through the Christian life without letting our rabbi down. It belongs. I don't know how that feels, but it belongs. It belongs to the Christian life. We can't make it without letting him down. I'm not saying we try to let him down, <laughs> but no matter what, we're going to let down our rabbi, Jesus. Our fallen nature has shaped us in deeper, more profound ways than we realize. It has shaped us more than we would like to admit. So after the Last Supper, Jesus takes his disciples with him to Gethsemane. And then he separates three guys. Who are they? Peter, James, and John. He separates them and he takes them with him. Jesus is struggling. It says in Matthew chapter 26, he began, think of this, Jesus saying to these three guys, or this is what he's going on, he began to be sorrowful 
troubled. And so Jesus, alone with Peter, James, and John, begins opening up. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. What's he saying? He's telling these three guys, I am really hurting. I am struggling here. I'm carrying a heavy burden. And he says to him, can you stay awake with me? In this time, this difficult time, can you stay awake? They fall asleep. Now, Jesus wasn't against a good nap. In fact, I'd like to think that's a good spiritual discipline, a good nap. Can I get an amen there? (laughs) Jesus wasn't against a good nap, but this was not the time for it. An ancient word that comes from the Greek depicts a spiritual condition known as acedia. And this is how it's described. Do we have this on? There it is. An emotion that strikes our desire to be mindful of the Lord. Now this isn't a word in the Bible, okay, but it is an ancient Greek word. It is the feeling of restlessness. The spiritual life seems distant and hard to get to, and sleep distraction seem like the only solution. It is that feeling when we get lulled into listlessness or spiritual indifference. Other words that go with acedia are sloth and apathy. Prayer seems unnecessary, almost silly. How does Acedia affect you. It affects us all. Maybe a, maybe a real experience of it is, maybe especially during COVID, you're locked inside and you've just watched 20 episodes of something on Netflix and just that feeling of, ah, you know, just, just tired, lulled into listlessness. Our culture wants to dull your soul. Our culture is marketed, makes money out of, has picked on each one of us individually to lull us into acedia. Silence and solitude are one way to remedy. Listen to this quote by... Dallas Willard. Among the practices that can help us attend to soul care at a basic level are solitude and silence. We practice these by finding ways to be alone and away from talk and noise. In this place of quiet communion, we discover again that we do have souls, that we indeed have inner beings to be nurtured. Acedia, we forget that we have this inner soul that needs to be nurtured. Then we begin to experience again the presence of God in the inner sanctuary, speaking to and interacting with us. We understand anew that God will not compete for our attention. We must arrange for our communion with him as we draw aside in silence and solitude. Peter and the others were asleep 
emotionally gone when Jesus needed them. Peter was still learning to follow. Follow a way of life that is able to respond as Jesus leads. Jesus tells them, stay awake. Doesn't mean don't ever sleep again. Doesn't say never take a nap. But in the time when it's needed, prepare yourself, be diligent. It's a word for us, a crucial word for us as disciples. Spiritually, stay awake. Not long afterwards, Jesus was arrested. Their rabbi was taken away. Fear and confusion set in. It says that the disciples scattered. As Peter looks for Jesus, he is spotted and asked, aren't you one of the disciples? The very thing that Peter said he would never do, he did. He denies Jesus three times. What was the result? It says that Jesus, or I'm sorry, it says that Peter went out and what did he do? He wept bitterly. I kind of picture him going out all by himself. It says he went out probably by himself and he wept bitterly. There's a soul sickness that every one of us carry. Of all other struggles, it perhaps is the most destructive to our experiencing life with God. And the word for that is shame. It feels like this. I would rather do for God than live a life open to God. Why? My shame convinces me I should keep a little distance. I confess, I confess some of my sin, but I can't go deeper into the darker places of my heart. Why? Shame convinces me it is better to hide. It's better to walk alone. It's better to isolate. I ask God for forgiveness and I just keep asking, pleading over and over. Why? Shame convinces me it didn't work. God forgives and loves others, sure, but not me. Not enough to put up with my wanderings and my frequent blunders. We could go on and on. It is there, shame, the enemy of our soul. Its voice is enticing and convincing. As Peter realized what he had done, his soul must have been racked with it. And Peter went out alone and he wept bitterly. And so we come to the last chapter of John, John chapter 21. Jesus has risen from the dead and is about to appear to his disciples for the third time. 
And Peter is sitting with six of the disciples and he says, I'm going fishing. And they say, we'll go with you. And they fish all night. This is a sad, sad report for anyone that likes to fish. They fished all night and it says, and they caught nothing. All night, now it's morning, and someone up on the shore yells to him, children, have you caught anything? And the response, no. He tells them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, and you will find some. They do, and the nets are so full, they can hardly get them in. And John says to Peter, it's the master. How did John know it was the master? A little side note, I think it's interesting that back in Luke chapter 5, three years earlier, before they were disciples, Peter, James, and John were fishing partners. And they had fished all night and they had caught nothing. And this rabbi named Jesus was wanting to speak to the large crowd. And so he gets into their boat to speak to the crowd. And then after he's done speaking, he says, go out into the deep water, put down your nets. And when they did, there were so many fish, their boat was sinking. And it was at that, that they left everything and they became disciples. Jesus just repeated what he had done at their initial calling. And John knew it. It's the master. So John chapter 21, verse 7. When Peter recognized it was the Lord, this is a little bit of my own paraphrase, okay? When Peter recognized it was the Lord, he got half-dressed, okay? It sounds like they were fishing either naked or nearly naked, and he puts on a cloak. When Peter recognized it was the Lord, he got half-dressed, and it's an interesting, and threw himself into the sea. It's a rather interesting verb. He threw himself into the sea. Now, it's seven people in the boat. It's a fairly large boat. It's not just a little, a little rowboat. This is a boat for seven people. It says he threw himself into the sea. Now, if you've watched movies of this kind of taking place, some of the oldies of, uh, you know, get this idea of Peter jumping out of the boat and kind of swimming to get up to the shore as fast as he can. But the text doesn't tell us that. The text just says that he threw himself into the sea, but it doesn't tell us which direction. So most likely, he jumped towards Jesus so he could swim and get to Jesus faster to be with his friend and his rabbi, his master. But he may have cast himself away from Jesus. He may have threw himself into the other side, off the other side of the boat. Why would he do that? You may ask. Maybe a deeper question is, why do you? Why do I? Why do we spend so much time keeping our distance? 
Why do we hide from our good God and Father? We have our ways and we have our reasons. We wonder, will he really forgive me? Is he disappointed in who I am? Does he still love me? Does he still want me? Is he really good? And so often we busy ourselves. We try to make up for our shortcomings. We keep a distance until we feel better or worthy again. We hide. What's going on? As we discussed earlier, the voice of shame. Here's a quote. Our need for grace is often much greater than our distorted image of God can deliver. Does that make sense? It's my quote, so it's okay if it doesn't, but. Our need for grace is often much greater than our distorted, distorted image of God can deliver. We live with this idea that God is angry, God is distant. We have this distorted image of who God is. I think all of us struggle with this. I listen to a lot of people, and this is one I hear over and over and over. I think it's a big one in us. We have this distorted image in our mind of who God is. And that image is how we actually interact with God. And so because of that distorted image, we're not able, we're unable to receive the kind of grace that actually God wants to lavish upon us. We desperately need to know the true God of abundant grace, not just up here. I've always said, I went to Moody Bible Institute. I know that grace is God's unmerited favor towards me. I know the definition but it's taken me nearly a lifetime, I'm not done yet, I guess, to begin to realize that God's, that God's grace isn't just a definition, that it means that God enjoys me, that he wants to be with me, that maybe I could even say he likes me. He loves to lavish it upon me. That's taken a lifetime. I got the def definition early, but to be able to actually get it down and have it change my image that operating image of who God is that I, the way I don't or I, the way I hide from him and all that, to have it change that. It's taken years upon years. We desperately need to know the true God of abundant grace. Oh God, help us to recognize the distorting voice of shame and the, isolate, the isolating effect it has on our soul. And may we recognize your voice of love that restores us. And now, in the last chapter of John, after they have breakfast together on the shore, Jesus pulls Peter aside and asks Peter a question. It's a highly relational question. It's a heart question. A heart question, not a head question. He doesn't ask Peter what he believes or what he knows. 
he goes to Peter's interior world. John 21, verse 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend or shepherd. The word there is like a shepherd, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Think about this. You know, in the Bible, a lot of times it says, Jesus restores Peter. I'm not sure how restoring this is. <laughs> I mean, he is restoring him, but he's not doing it in an easy way. Peter is grieved. This is like excruciating for Peter that his rabbi keeps asking him this question. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me more than these? A demonstrative pronoun. Any, grammar, any grammarians out there? A demonstrative of these, it's a, demonst it's a demonstrative pronoun. So we need to know what Jesus is pointing at to know what the these are. Is it the fish? Is he pointing to the fish and is, is he saying, Peter, do you love me more than the success I can give you with the great amount of fish? We don't know the tone. Peter had said that if, even if all others fell away, I'll never fall. Even though these other disciples, even though they fall away, I will never fall away. In other words, Peter's declaring, I think we could paraphrase it this way. Jesus, I love you more than these, more than the rest of the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? It is a very strong discipleship question. It's one that must continually come into our lives. Our loves quickly become disoriented. This is a question meant to reorient our hearts. Do you, do you love me more than we could go on? Do you love me more than getting your way, being successful, winning, being the best, all those things that compete for your heart. Jesus asks, and I think that question can come down and resonate with us. Do you love me more than these? Perhaps it would have been a good time for Peter to realize he was one of the disciples and just as broken. Maybe instead of saying, yes, Lord, his response could have been, 
Lord, I desire to, but I'm not there yet. Maybe that would have been a more appropriate, a more honest answer. Jesus keeps asking, but without the demonstrative pronoun. Peter, do you love me? Jesus is using here the word agape, the highest form of love. It assumes a relationship. Why does it assume a relationship? Because we can't really love someone without knowing them. Within this question of love, of do you love me, I think there's other questions that kind of fit within that. Peter, do you love me? Also means, do you know me? Because again, to ask somebody to love you means that they have to know you. Peter, do you know me? Do you know who I am? Are you in this with me? Do you love me? It's a vulnerable question. You don't want to go around asking everybody that because it is vulnerable because you don't know what they're going to say. It's a soul-searching question. Could we say it is a deeply personal question for any follower of Jesus? So as Jesus disciples Peter with these relational, formational questions, he communicates to Peter a simple call. And what is it? Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend or shepherd my sheep. And verse 17, feed my sheep. Now, I'm no farmer. I've never had sheep, never had cows. But why does a shepherd feed and tend to his flock? I believe that the main reason is so they will grow and mature. Everybody with me? Sure, they wants to take care of them, but is that a reason that a shepherd cares and tends and feeds the flock is so that they'll grow and that they'll mature from lambs into sheep and be ready for whatever their next use is, mutton or wool. You with me? So I think in other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, help my people to grow. I will be gone. I will send you a helper. Above all else, help my people to grow, to grow up into me. I wonder how that conversation lingered in Peter. I wonder how it shaped him. It's amazing how a well-placed question cuts through everything and gets to the soul. And Jesus was a master of it. A shaping question. Do you love me? And a call. Help my people to grow. So we're switching gears here. Almost feel like we need an intermission. <laughs> but we won't take one. Okay.
feel like I'm doing all the talking here. <clears throat> In Peter's final years, again, a- approximately 30 years later, he wrote his second letter. Think of that. All this t- took place with him in Jesus. This was around the year 32, 33. So now it's like the year, what, 63, 65. Peter started out with all this with Jesus. He was 31, 32. Now he's in his 60s, his mid-60s. He's writing to the same believers he wrote his first letter to, those scattered across Asia Minor because of persecution. It says that they were in exile in 1 Peter. He warns them again of false prophets. That was a big one, that these false prophets and these false teachers that are around and they were twisting the truth. He explains to them the day of the Lord. But there's something that has captured Peter. And listen to what he says. And we're actually going to be going, uh, we're starting in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, and we're going to be going backwards, okay? So, um, we're not yet to the insert yet, so you don't have to be looking there, but we're going to be going, we're going to be going backwards instead of forwards, all right? So, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. <clears throat> Listen to what Peter says. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. In other words, Peter knows he's going to die soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what do we hear here? What do we notice? Peter's saying, I'm going to be gone soon. My time is short. Above all else, there is something I want to leave with you. In his older age, this has become his focus. This is what I want you to get. You know it. He says, you know it. You already know it. But I'm going to keep saying it to you. I want to stir you up with it. I want it to go so deep that after I'm gone, you will still be able to recall this at any time. Isn't that interesting? Peter, like, this has got him. This is his focus. What was it that Peter in his old, old age wanted his, to leave with his listeners? Before we go there, let's look at the importance Peter places on these qualities. Again, we're going backwards. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. He says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in other words, if you are growing in these things, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Wow. Peter is saying that these qualities, these things are crucial. They're really, really important. If you get them, you're going to have a fruitful life. If you're growing in these things, you're going to be fruitful. And if you don't get them, you're going to be nearsighted and spiritually blind in the way that you're living your life. 
So what are these things? What are these qualities that Peter wants for them? So here we are, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. He says this, For this very reason, which you have to look up again the verses prior of for this very reason, it's because they have this faith and they've been given the divine nature. Uh, they, they have the divine nature in them. They have the spirit within them. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. What do we hear here? Peter is emphatically saying, you need to grow. Why was it so important? It was the call that Jesus gave him. Jesus wants his people to grow. To grow up into him. So let's look at the direction of the growth. What starts out as faith grows through virtue, through knowledge, through self-control, and it grows into love, agape love, the highest form of love. Do you agree? Or would you agree that the highest form of maturity, the highest place of maturity in the Christian life is simply agape love? It's not based in just what we know. It's not necessarily based in what we do, like all these other things that we can base in in our knowledge. It's not based in all that. It's based into growing into Christian love, and that becomes our rudder. All, you know, if, 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 we're, if, if we've grown into that, there's humility. If we've grown into that, there's service. If we've grown into that, there's all these other, all the other fruits are there. The highest place of maturity is a place of growing into love. That discipleship question, Peter, do you love me? Worked its way in Peter until the end, till the end of his life. And the thing is, we can get stuck in any one of those. We can be a people that are just known, that we're known as being virtuous. We have, we make good, you know, another definition of virtue is a habit of making moral decisions. We've developed a habit of making moral decisions. We can be a people known for, oh, they're a good church. They're known for their good decisions. They're moral. It's good, but we can get stuck there. We can be a people known for having self-control. That's good. Peter says it's really important, but we can get stuck there. People can even applaud us. Oh, look at, you're doing so well. Look at, look at this quality you have in your life but what they don't realize is that actually we may be stuck because we're not growing and that the Christian life is always about growing. So we're bringing this in for a landing, okay? <clears throat> Here's a paraphrase of 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Kind of done some study, 
And, I, and let's listen to what it says. Take this faith of yours, and this is in your, now we're in your bulletin, all right? <clears throat> the home stretch. Take this faith of yours and use it to develop virtue or good character. Take your virtue and develop knowledge, spiritual understanding. Take your knowledge and develop self-control, alert discipline. Take your self-control and develop steadfastness, passionate patience. Take your steadfastness and develop godliness, reverent wonder. Take your godliness and develop brotherly, and I put in there sisterly affection. Phileo, Greek word for love, a lesser of the loves under agape. It's from where we get the word, the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo, warm friendliness. And take your brotherly, sisterly affection and develop love, agape. Generous love. Peter, in his final years, has given himself to helping the sheep to grow. Not in numbers, but in their interior life with Christ. He knows that true growth leads to love for God and love for one another. So a few things we can notice. Everybody with me? What time do you usually end? Are we over? We're, we're good? Okay. Maybe we'll go shorter at the end. I don't, I don't know what we need to do here, but I, I don't want to keep people long. But It's somebody else's fault. Okay. <laughs> a few things we can notice. Observations from the text and from life. Okay, again, these are right in your bulletin. And I'm just going to kind of go through them rather quickly here. First of all, and I think this is with great hope, that God is very patient. Our development is a long, slow process. It says that those that are developing in these things, our development is a low, long, slow process. Is that true, Dave? Are you still developing? Have you got there yet? You have not? It's a long, slow process. God is patient. Second, the growth becomes more and more relational begins with virtue, self-control, and the growth becomes talking about brotherly, sisterly affection and, and agape love. That as we grow as Christians, we don't become more and more arrogant or stuck in our ways or whatever. We grow. It becomes more and more relational. Growth requires more and more interior transformation. We can, we can fake good moral decisions. We can even make good moral decisions without a lot of heart change needing to take place. But the more we grow into what God has really called us, the kind of growth God's looking for, it requires more. We can't do that on our own. It requires more and more heart transformation. It, it requires heart change. Next one, growth and love cannot skip over early earlier development. Hopefully you can get this one with me. Some would say, I'm just going to love. I don't need all that other stuff. I don't need to, those other virtues. I don't want to be legalistic. I don't, I don't want to, whatever we might say, I just want to love. 
That's not Christian love. Christian love is a development that begins with virtues and self-control and discipline and knowledge. That's all part of growing into love. Next, agape isn't cheap or easy. It's not a sentimentalized warm feeling. It takes a lifetime of development. And lastly, the deeper side of growth in love towards God gets into my deeper areas of deformation. We started off saying we've all been shaped. Well, a lot of things have shaped us in the wrong way. And so we're all here this morning somewhat deformed in our soul. And for us to grow into those deeper places means that we have to address those deeper places of our heart where that deformation has taken place. Shame will try to keep us from going there. Grace will be able to go in wide, eyes wide open. It'll get into those areas of control and anger, selfishness. The list goes on. So we, we may think those things are going to disappear as we grow, but actually I think they start bubbling up because as we grow, they start showing up. And instead of having to hide, we can be, begin by God's grace to realize, oh, this is something God wants me to look at. He wants me to address. I don't have to hide it any longer. I can talk about it with others. So how do we develop in these things? I have six thoughts. Everybody still with me? Again, I feel like I'm doing an awful lot of talking up here. Number one, we need to have spiritual practices. We mentioned silence and solitude. Obviously, we need to have time in Scripture. Just coming, coming to church on Sunday is not enough to help us to grow. You can't be in the secular world, think that you can come in on a Sunday, listen to a sermon, go home, and that you're, you're going to continue growing. We need to have spiritual practices in place. It takes effort. A quote by Dallas Willard, that God is opposed to our earning, not our effort. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm saved by grace. I don't need to do anything. It takes effort to grow. But the right kind of effort, not earning effort, but effort. Number three, we have to pay attention to our longings and our desires. And this, this might be a little bit odd for us to think about, but we actually need to pay attention to our longings and our desires. Because sure, we need to put to death those desires of the flesh, but God has actually placed a spirit in us that gives us a longing for himself. So as we begin to tune out the desires of the flesh, we also tune in to the deeper longings that beneath all these lesser desires, the deepest longing we have as believers is a longing for God himself. And I think if we pay attention, if we slow down, we begin to hear pay attention to that desire that it's there. And we begin to cultivate it and, not, and nurture it. Number four, we need to be aware of our internal image of God. We won't, we won't grow towards someone we're afraid of or who is disappointed in us. And I think that's huge. We already talked about that some. 
but we carry this idea of God that he's disappointed, that he's angry, we're not going to be very drawn to, to grow towards him. So we need to pay attention to the internal image that we carry of God. Number five, learning to be with God requires cultivating reflection and self-awareness. Again, in our culture, we're so much about being busy. We define ourselves by being busy. How you doing? Keeping busy? Busy has a way of killing our, any idea what's going on inside of us. Reflection and self-awareness. And also to be aware of when, when and why I'm resisting or I'm avoiding God. Because I think any time throughout our day, there's times that we actually are probably avoiding God. It's like, God, I just want my space. And lastly, we need to start somewhere. It's like, I don't know where to begin. Well, start making good moral decisions. <laughs> start somewhere. God actually made the spiritual life very accessible to us. Sometimes out of the shame or it's like I'm too old now or we have all these reasons. Start somewhere. There's a good list here. Start somewhere and it seems like the growth will take place. Talk to people. Talk to somebody about it. Pray with others. Get into the word. Start somewhere. Two questions for us as disciples. Do you love me? Do you love me? A question Jesus has for us. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And I think in our life, if we take some time, we can probably find a few of what those theses might be. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And a question, I think no one can answer this totally for us. We need to sit with it. How do I grow in Christ? What do I need to grow in Christ? To truly place myself under the rabbi as a disciple, what do I really need to do? What does it mean for me to grow in Christ? We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.